It's always a privilege for me and for my family to be here with the saints at Philadelphia. Um, we're really grateful for you all. We really like you all. We have a lot of respect for the church, a church that really cares about robust theology, really cares about thinking about sin in our own lives and the centrality of the gospel in our own lives. Uh, and yet, with all of those things, is also really outward focused, both here locally in various ways and internationally. And of course, that's how we came into friendship with, with one another. And so we have a lot of uh, respect for you, a lot of admiration, thankfulness to God for you. And so it's just really a privilege to, to be trusted to, to bring the word. Uh, and Psalm 126, which we're going to read this morning and hopefully unpack this morning, really helped me think about what God is doing in the midst of transitional seasons in our lives and what God is doing in the hard things that we face in our lives, even if they're not transitional uh, in nature. So I want to read Psalm 126 together with you and then pray. Psalm 126 is, is a psalm with an emotion for every season. And really, ultimately, it's, it's a biographical sketch of, of Jesus' life, and I hope you'll see that as we continue. So Psalm chapter 126, starting right at the beginning. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. And he, go, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray together. Fathers, we look at your word this morning. We ask for me, for those listening, God, that you would open our eyes to see beautiful things in your law. Help these things that I say to be true, motivated with, by a clean heart. And Lord, I pray for, for my friends, the hearers, that you would help them to see and hear with with the eyes of faith, the ears of faith, God, to receive these things as from you and apply them to the various situations and struggles that they find themselves in. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I have four points. Maybe that helps you. Uh, the four points are looking back. Point number two, looking uncertain. Three, looking up to God. Four, looking forward. And we can see quite plainly here in the first three verses that the author looks back to a time when the people of God were happy. We were like those who dream, it says in, in verse, verse number one. Or maybe in our vernacular, it was too good to be true back then. Yet it, it was true. We don't know with certainty what event this psalm is in reference to, but it's probably in a reference to the time in the early 500s B.C. when King Cyrus released the Hebrews from Babylonian captivity and, re- uh, and allowed them to return to Zion, return to the promised land. 
And of course, we know that there's this human tendency to, to, to look back with nostalgia on times past, maybe a tendency to, to gloss over the, the hard parts and pine for the, for the good. Right. The Israelites had done that when they when they left Egypt in the Exodus. Right. They, they, they longed for the cucumbers and the leeks of Egypt, forgetting that they ate them uh, with chains on their on their ankles. But in the case of Psalm 126, the joy seems to be genuine. The nostalgia not romanticized. And we can only imagine the joy uh, of being released from of kept, uh, released from captivity and not only from captivity, but then allowed to return home to the to the promised land or the place that they that they knew the homes that they knew. And they were really happy. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's somewhat striking as you read verses one through three, how happy these guys were in verse two. Their mouths were filled with laughter in verse three. Shouts of joy. They, they were singing with happiness. They were singing so much, it was so good for them, in fact, that the nations around them took notice. In verse number two, the nations said, wow, God has, has blessed them. God is for them. They saw that God was at work in the Hebrews' midst. Most of us have things in our life that we can look back on and, and say, man, that was good. Those were good times. You know, they say that the key to the good times is recognizing when, when you're in them. Uh, and most of us have things like that in our past that we can look back on and say, man, that was that was good. Thank God uh, for that. And certainly, if, if you're a Christian today, then you can look back to the time when you were rescued, not from Babylonian captivity, but from the captivity of, of sin and deliverance in Christ is ultimately what Psalm 126 is picturing deliverance. From sin in Christ is ultimately what what Babylonian, the the, the release from Babylonian captivity prefigured. Ephesians 2, verses 13 and 14, you can you can turn there if you'd like. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 pictures this for us, where it says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated. From the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants, to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's Jesus bringing strangers home, making them his own. And so Psalm 126 is is licensed to reminisce about the good times in the past. It's encouragement to do what we do, what you do every Sunday here when you when you gather rehearsing the truths of the gospel over and over in song, in the reading of the word, in prayer, in the preaching of the word again and again and again. The gospel message looking back to that time when Christ saved you. Remembering your rescue. And and, and in fact, I think that we could say that the Sunday gathering is like a a new covenant rendering of Psalm 126. Looking back on what God has done for us. And if the Hebrews rejoiced about their release from Babylonian captivity, how much more should we rejoice that we've been released from the bondage of sin? From the sway of the devil, from the the penalty of hell, how much more should we rejoice? And yet, for all of us, me and for you, I think 
the gospel, the good news of our deliverance does become plain at times, right? I mean, even as we say, I mean, the, the truths that we sang in the songs this morning, I mean, well done on song selection, profoundly good news. And yet they can become plain to us. Last week, my, my son and I went to Chick-fil-A and, and we walked home together. And on the way home, we decided just on the spur of the moment to call his friend from Ostrakhan, the city that we lived in in Russia. His friend's name is is Islam. And he comes from a people group called the Ingush. The Ingush, there's probably one or two of those guys that are that are Christians, maybe. Uh, but an extraordinarily unreached people group. Ben, his, my, the son, uh, has talked to him about Jesus. I've shared the gospel with him. I've shared the gospel with, with his dad uh, a number of times. But, but as I think about Islam, and especially now having left the city where he lives, I just think about how little access to the gospel that he has. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he'll bump into a, a Christian at some point in his life, but the chances that he meets a real, live, born-again follower of Jesus living among that Muslim people group are infinitesimally small. And if he were to meet that Christian, and if that Christian were, in fact, to share the gospel with him, the plausibility of the gospel to him would be almost zero. Because of his because of his religion, because of his family, because of the culture that he comes from, because of the country that he lives in, because of the expectations of his parents, there would be no category that he would ever have apart from a miraculous work of God. And ultimately, that miraculous work of God is how we got saved, right? But, but the likelihood that the gospel could even make sense to him and the likelihood that he could even have a category to think about leaving all of that in order to follow Jesus is just so, so small. And yet you and I, most of you, certainly me, we have had so much access to the gospel, haven't we? Many of us from childhood, many of us from believing parents, Certainly Sunday after Sunday in this church, Wednesday night, again and again. And then the abundance of literature that we have in the English language. And the, I mean, we're living in the golden age of Christian music, I feel like, in the English language. Like, so much good things to rehearse the gospel again and again. So, this act, we just have so much access. And yet a guy like Islam has so little. And I say all of that not to heap you with guilt. That's no good. I don't want that for you. But I do want you to think about that that was all God's choice that that you were born in this context around these kinds. I mean, even living in the South, right, increases the likelihood that you that you run into the gospel, that there's a category to to leave sin and begin to follow Jesus. Well, that was God's sovereign choice. To give you that kind of access. It was God's sovereign choice to open your eyes so that you would, in fact, believe it. We live in a privileged state as it relates to access to the gospel. So by God's grace, may that not get plain to us. May it cause rejoicing in our hearts. And, and, and let's resolve, therefore, to ask God, right? We're, we're dependent on God. Like, it, in the same way that we are dependent on God to open our eyes at first so we believe the gospel, we're dependent on God to refresh and revive our hearts so that that gospel that we believed back then is precious to us. So let's ask Him. 
regularly, God, make these old truths sweet to me so that I look back like the Hebrews did in Psalm 126 and have rejoicing and laughter and happiness in my heart. Now, it's possible, of course, that you're here this morning. You haven't been rescued from the captivity of sin. It's possible that you're still separated from Christ and far away from the promises of God. You're here in this building, so there's some sense in which you're close. But really and truly, spiritually speaking, before God, you're very far. But I'm here this morning to tell you that today could be the day when you come home. Like those Hebrews came out of Babylonian captivity and back to Zion. Today could be the day when you say no thank you to the captivity of sin and self. And you go with Jesus who's already come for you into the freedom of forgiveness and adoption. Today could be that day. So whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian this morning, the reminder in verses 1 through 3 is to look to Christ. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time. He's the fount of life. He's true joy. But, as I said before, the psalm has an emotion, has a note, let's say, for every emotion, a note for every experience in our lives. And so the psalm doesn't stay here. The psalm lives in the real world of human struggle. Life is not one uh, sustained run of good. There's hard, there's difficulty, there's transition. And this psalm speaks to those difficulties. So let's see that beginning in verse four. And this is the second point. Looking uncertain. Our text is short. I don't think it hurts us to read it again. So right in verse one and coming to four. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Then this switch. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. Restore our fortunes. This is the verse four verse. The first half of verse four is that that uncertain middle. It's the transition. This is the end of the good run and the groping for the for the next thing. Now, we ultimately aren't sure what happened to the psalmist. Seems like there's some sort of of crisis, definitely some sort of uncertainty. verses one through three are in the past. Verse 4 is the moment that the author is living in. Verses 5 and 6 is is looking toward the future. But some trouble has come the people's way. Even in their return or after their return from Babylonian captivity. And it's not hard to imagine what that might have been. Famine or war or loss of faith. Some sort of unexpected turn of events. Whatever it was, it was hard. Verses 5 and 6 tell us that it led to tears. And to weeping, even. It wasn't like before. And it's not hard to map that onto our own experience. The loss of job, the loss of a job, moving to, to a new place, kids that have stopped following the Lord, a, a broken relationship, sickness, health difficulties, ailing parents. It's not difficult to, to map 
the author's struggle onto our own struggles of various kinds. And just by way of example, I remember uh, after I graduated from college, I moved back in with my parents for six months, sort of to prepare to, to get married. And I remember this conversation with my dad right at the end of those six months, right before I was about to move out of the home, out of their financial provision. We drew up a budget, you know, like this is what it's going to take. I was about to get married. And I just remember the weight, you know, that came. And then I remember a few days later, we packed up the U-Haul with a couple of hand-me-downs, probably from my parents. And I remember getting the U-Haul. I hugged my mom, my dad, by myself, driving down to Tennessee from D.C. area. And I just thought, man, it's over. <laughs> like, it's on me now. And of course, God, you know. But I just felt this weight. And I felt this lack of ability to determine how it was going to work out. Like everything else, more or less, as long as I was a decent kid, did my homework, like it was working out, my parents were answering for it. But all of a sudden, it was on me. And I felt that, right? And that's maybe an example of, of the moment that the psalmist live, is living in. And it's a moment that all of you in various ways are familiar with. Like, I'm in this situation, I'm looking around uncertainly about how to fix it, and I don't know how it's going to work out. That's where the psalmist is. And these, these transitions are hard, aren't they? The waiting, the uncertainty. This is sin's breeding ground, isn't it? For fear and anxiety. And I, I do think there's a trap for us uh, here in these kinds of seasons. Because there can be this, this idea, it seems, among people like us, that if I do the right stuff, if I have the right theological positions, if I have good intentions, if I work hard, if I make a string of, of right and well-counseled decisions, then my life is more or less going to have this upward trajectory of good. You know, we can kind of project that. Like, oh, I've, I've made the good decisions according to the Bible. I've, I've worked hard. Like, it's, it's working out for me. It's going to work out for me. Or we can project that to others. Well, if you would do these things... Then it'll work out for you. Right church, right philosophy of parenting, good doctrine. But that sort of unfettered upward trajectory of good is so unfamiliar to the lives of the saints with whom we meet in the scriptures. Isn't it? I mean, they don't have lives like that. And I'm not even, I'm not even accounting for the sort of Bad situations that they got themselves in via their dumb decisions. You know, David on the roof. I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about like the regular Christians living their regular lives. They, it's always bumpy for them. I mean, think about them. Noah, bumps for him. Abraham, bumps. Paul, John the Baptist, the apostles. Jesus, life was always bumpy with lots of uncertainty and unknown outcomes and difficulties. And so, so I'm not sure why it is that we can tend to project that if we make the right decisions and believe the right stuff, that we're going to, it's going to be go, go smooth for us. Now, I'm, I'm for good theology. I complimented you guys a minute ago about that. I'm for taking counsel. I'm for working hard. All of that stuff. I'm not diminishing it. But I am saying check your expectations and check what is your source of trust. 
Because in the, in the Bible, the path to glory is almost always through the way of difficulty. Almost always. So this psalm beautifully captures the range of emotions and experiences that are normative in the Christian life. It's striking, isn't it? At the beginning of the psalm, joy. In the middle, uncertainty. By the end, there's tears and weeping and plodding through a barren field. Only to end with a note of joy. But that's our lives. Full range of experiences, full range of emotions. Now, a little postscript note on point number two, and then we'll go to three. But I think it's worth noting that there's no repentance in Psalm 126. And we can't say for certain that the problems weren't caused by sin, but there is no repentance here. And I think it's probably worth pointing out that Christians have troubles that aren't a result of their sin. And and knowing that works against our do good, have no trouble or why did why did, what did I do to deserve this sort of way of, of thinking about things? Jesus was was a perfect man and yet a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He constantly was living out this psalm, looking back to joy with the father, living in anticipation of of the difficulty that was coming and yet for the sake of the joy continuing in it. And I think this can, can really help when various crises come into our lives. It, it's, it's nice to be able to be burdened just by one thing, which is the crises itself, and not have to be burdened by this aching and haunting question, has God walked away from me because I'm bad? Because even if, and this is sometimes true, sometimes our difficulties are associated with our sin. But if they are, and we can't ultimately know this side of heaven, but if they are, even when that's the case, then that's God lovingly beckoning you back into fellowship with himself. And so, so the point is that whether the crises or the difficulty that you face is connected to your sin or not, and it isn't necessarily connected to your sin, you never have to be burdened by the question, has God walked away from me? If you're a Christian. You never have to wrestle with the question, has, has the Father turned His back on me? Never. So just be burdened by the one thing. But not that, not that question. Okay, so, at verse 4, we begin to turn to the future. That's the second half of 4, that's 5 and 6. And so whether you're in some season of uncertainty and difficulty now, or that season is, is on its way, the end of the psalm has a lot of encouraging things to say to you. And so here's point number three, looking up to God. And it comes from the second half of verse four, where he prays where the psalmist prays, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. That's a little bit of a difficult reference for us. Like what's going on there? Well, the Negev is this is this desert barren region in southern Israel where there's not a lot of life and there's not a lot of water. But as is often the case in places like that, there are occasional torrential storms. And what happens? That that dry riverbed and maybe it's been dry for a year or more. All of a sudden 
is gorged with water such that the stones get turned up and the people scatter, right? And then in a matter of days, green begins to spring forth because all, of, all, the, all the time in that hardened soil there was the seed of life. And, and then it turns lush and green and then there's streams flowing in that area. And so what is the psalmist doing right here? He's saying, Lord, answer our trouble in a miraculous way like only you can. Do it suddenly. Do it unexpectedly. Change this person. Heal me. Cause these circumstances to move in a new direction. Provide the funding. Write a story that only you can write. We should live with all of our good theology. We... All of our orderliness to our lives. We need to live with that hope in the miraculous. God does move. Sometimes suddenly. Sometimes miraculously. The prodigal does return. The funds do come in. Good news finally hits the inbox. The gospel does begin to actually spread in a place where historically it had been very difficult and had fallen on hard and dry ground. So let us guard against thinking subconsciously that that we that the only things to hope in are the things that we can somehow control. This psalm helps us to live as people aware of the supernatural, because we do. Do you believe in a God that lives and exists and acts above space and time? He has access to to levers that we never see. He acts independent of us. And we ought to live with that hope, with that plea, with that perspective for Philadelphia Baptist Church, for our own lives, for the world. God can act like a rushing river in a desert. That's the plea of the psalmist. It ought to be ours as well. All right. Last point. Point number four. Verses five and six. So whereas in verse four, the cry is for a miracle, streams of water in the desert, an act of God. Other than a prayer, there's no human instrumentation in the second half of verse number four. Right. But in five and six, there is human instrumentation. There is human work. Let's look at it again. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So three times, I think there's this verb of work. sow, and then again, go in six and then six bearing the seed. These this is human work. This is human effort. This is him doing something. And and really five and six, I'm sure you notice, are are basically the same promise in repetition, right? In in five, we have tears. In six, we have weeping. In five, we have sowing. In six, we have going out and sowing. And then in in verse five, we have reaping. In verse six, we have sheaves in hand, which is essentially reaping. And in both places, there are these shouts of joy. So so what we're seeing is is that neither the suffering in the psalmist's life or the prayer for a miracle frees him 
in inaction. He's not going to wallow in self-pity. He's going to take steps. He's going to move forward. His tears will accompany him, but they will not stop him. And, and, and notice, he can't solve, I think we can assume, he can't solve all the problems that he faces. But he does have a resource. What's his resource? Seeds. And he does have a skill. Planting. And so he's going to take the one step that he knows. He's going to work. He's going to obey. I, I, I think you have a sense for what this looks like in, in your life. We look around and see this difficult situation, and it's painful. And if, if, if there's 75 people in this room, there's 75 stories of difficulty. Maybe 73. But I bet there's 75. And you look around, and you say, I don't know what to do about this. And it's grievous. And there's tears. And there's weeping, just like for the psalmist. But you do know... And if you don't know, there is one, a faithful step forward. And the psalm calls us to take that step, even in our tears. And let me be quick to say, this is not pull yourself up by your bootstraps Christianity. This is not God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. This is not earning favor with God via your obedience. So how do we know that verses 5 and 6 are not just about hard work and grit? Well, first, the farmer recognizes that his contribution is limited to the sowing. Right? It's still God that will give the growth. It's still God that can bring the fruit, produce the harvest. The psalmist is limited. But God is delighted to participate with him and you and me in bringing about the harvest. He does his Limited role in faith-filled obedience. Secondly, we know that 5 and 6 are not just do more, be better Christianity, because ultimately Psalm 126 is a a biography of Jesus. Right? We We could sketch Jesus' life onto Psalm 126. Sowing in tears is how Jesus lived. Think about Hebrews chapter 12, verse number two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. Here's a verb of action. Here's a verb of obedience, a verb of doing. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. This is. The Jesus who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With tears, he took faithful, obedient steps toward the cross, knowing that through that, God would bring a harvest of joy and good. So regardless, here's the bigger picture. Trials will come. Uncertainty will shadow you. We will weep. But we can sow as we weep, sow in obedience, not because we're tough, but because we know that Jesus has gone before us doing the same. He has already won the favor of the Father for us. He has already won the indwelling of the Spirit for us, and He has marked out the way to live with tears 
in difficulty, in obedience, waiting for God to bring either the river in the desert or the harvest that always just comes in the fall. All of this under the banner of of prayer, all of this under a, a, a hope, an ask, a constant silent recognition, God, I need you to weigh in. And of course, I don't know what this looks like for you. What, what sowing in tears faithfully looks like, it looks different for, for each of us. Maybe you have a prodigal. And sowing in, in tears is continuing in faithful prayer for him or her. Maybe you have some kind of awful job. Sowing in tears is showing up every day, working to the glory of God, even as you're submitting resumes elsewhere. Maybe you're some 10th grader without a, a friend circle. And sowing in tears is continuing to be yourself, continuing to be kind, continuing to follow Jesus no matter what. Maybe you battle depression. Sowing in tears is waking up with the alarm every day, 7 a.m., whatever you've got it set for, getting up, getting going. Maybe it's, it's caring for some aging parent despite those years seeming meaningless and being so burdensome to you. Plotting faithfulness in the same direction with the confidence that God will bring a harvest of fruit and joy. That he will keep his promises. One author said, there's no more precious fruit gathered from earth than that which springs from seeds sown in tears and pain and sighing and persecution. No more precious fruit gathered than that. And so as we close, I do want to draw your attention to a really sobering reality that maybe is sort of in the back of of some of your minds. And it's real and it's heavy. The fruit is not always gathered here on the earth. The fruit that's being talked about in five and six, the joy that's being talked about in five and six, it's not always gathered here on earth. Often it is, but not always. And so we're going to sing about that here in a second. When we sing Ancient of Days, I think the last verse goes like this. Though I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Savior King. That's faithfully living in verse 4, in the transition, in the difficulty, in the uncertainty. I will watch and wait for the Savior King. But then it follows up like this. Then my joy complete, standing face to face in the presence of the Ancient of Days. That's the recognition that ultimately, sometimes, the resolution doesn't come on this side of eternity. It awaits us in heaven. And we need to see God's promise being fulfilled sometimes here and now and sometimes then. And so again, the, the, the scripture speaks to the, to the whole range of human emotion and experience. And, and so, for example, in, in Romans 8, a familiar passage, right? That the sufferings of this present age are not worth being compared. And we have to read that soberly with seriousness. But those sufferings of this present age are not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. In the wording of Psalm 126, we would we would say that the reaping is going to be immeasurably better than the tearful sowing. 
No matter when the sheaves come in, now or later. Now, a little missionary secret. I preached this sermon last week. Um, And after I preached this sermon, I was standing at the back. This guy comes up to me and he says, kind of tears in his eyes. He said, I want to tell you a story. He said, 13 years ago, we got a call from the hospital that my mother was dying. And my sister and I went to the hospital and she was laying there on a hospital bed, very near death, could barely speak, but she started talking. And we could only understand what she was saying when we we'd leaned down really close and we were catching about every third word. But we pieced together that there in her dying moments, she was quoting Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. Well, here is this sister saint arriving at that moment when she sees the Savior. And she'd been sowing in tears, I'm sure. And there were some things that she was like, now I get to reap. You know, she prayed, I'm confident, that she would get to reap some things before that moment. But she was faithful to the point that in her weakest moment, she had five and six committed to memory. And she was saying, I'm about to get to reap and it's going to be good. Right. So may God give you and I grace to live well with that hope and to die well with that hope that God will keep his promise to bring a harvest of good fruit and joy in our lives, no matter what we face. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for your word. It is relevant, so relevant to our lives. It's not up in the cloud, spiritual mumbo jumbo. It speaks in to the things that we live and experience. So now it's ours, God, to respond in faith. So we ask for the gift of faith, God, to believe what you've said, to really believe it newly, freshly, deeply, and to act where we need to act, whether that's just an attitude, a mentality, or that it's some thing to say, something to do. God, help us to, to, to take on difficulty well as people who have a Heavenly Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.